Welcome to the O'Reilly Design Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Tressler. This week, I sit down with Cynthia Savard-Saucier. We talk about design at Shopify, balancing compassion and rigor as a manager, and the sombrero-shaped designer. Enjoy the show. Cynthia, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'd love for you to start off by telling folks a little bit about your journey in design. Um, How did you know it was something you wanted to do? And how has it led you to the position you're in now as director of design at Shopify? Um, It's interesting. I never really wanted to become a designer. It's not a profession I was thinking about, actually. So as a youngster, like at 14, I was at a friend's house and um, her mom had a giant TV remote control. Like, you know, the large one with like really, really big numbers. Mm -hmm. And I was questioning her about it. And uh, she told me uh, her mom was an occupational therapist. And I was like, oh, this is so interesting, like helping other people do things that we can do all the time. Uh, So the giant TV remote control was obviously for people that had uh, poor vision. Um, So going into college and university, I didn't know what how you become occupational therapist. So I went into industrial design thinking that I'd become like an object architect or something like that. Uh, But I took two years to realize I was really not the best. <laughs> and my coworkers, well, my the other students I was studying with could tell you I was really poor at drawing my ideas. <laughs> so and whenever the, the, the teachers would give us an assignment, I'd always find like a way to not draw 3D objects. And that ended up being an interface very often. So that's how I became uh, interested by uh, user experience. And uh, specifically at my final years, uh, I did a project where um, I would help grandparents and kids connect through like a a little toy that had an interface. And that project um, actually caught some attention uh, around. And I was offered a job at a very big uh, user experience agency in Montreal. So I was really lucky to get that. And they hired me as a super, super junior UX designer. It's like I didn't know anything about anything. (laughs) Uh, But that turned out pretty well. Uh, I started like on some small projects doing, doing a lot of testing and that was very important to me. Well, it turned out that it was really important to me now. The first contact I had with users was was through testing interfaces. So I, I had a really good understanding of how tedious some very simple drop downs can be to many people around. Mm-hmm. So I moved in, uh, became a senior uh, user experience designer and joined a company, uh, a web digital company in Montreal that I really liked and did more work, became a lead there. So I had a small team of four designers. And um, then Shopify reached out to me after I gave a creative morning uh, conference. Mm-hmm. But it was very early in uh, in my new job. So I was like, oh, no, I really love that design agency. I don't want to move right now. It's very fun. And there's the agency work. It's always really cool. And you have like all the perks. Um, So I wasn't sure about going to product company. And uh, two years later, they insisted and persisted. (laughs) And and after two years, I was like, okay, let's meet. So I went to like the interviews, not thinking I would actually take the job. But I after like the first interview, I was completely sold and I really wanted it. And uh, they offered me a job as a designer and they said that thing where oh we don't hire leads from the get-go like you have to come in as a designer and you'll grow into a lead and as everyone will tell you like it looks like something a company will tell anyone to uh to have them join their company it looks like bullshit if i can say <laughs> uh, and i was a bit afraid initially i was like oh but it's a great opportunity it's such a nice company they have a beautiful product maybe i should join them even if it's as a designer not as a lead and it turned out that that was a really good bet because um, 
less than three years later, I have my team of 30 people and they're all wonderful and amazing designers, but also content strategists and front-end developers and, and researchers. So it was a really good bet that I took that, that day. <laughs> wow. That's fascinating. So they took, they were after you for two years and you finally, you finally made the move. Well, that makes me sound like someone everyone wants in their company, but <laughs> they do that. They, they play the long game. So we tend to do that when we reach out to a new employee or a new designer. Um, we, if they say no initially, we'll keep them and, and, and try again later. So that's what mm-hmm. they did. And the strategy obviously worked. <laughs> that's wonderful. So you co-authored um, the book Tragic Design with Jonathan Shariat. And in it, you outline, among other things, how product design decisions can have an impact, sometimes negative impact yeah. on, on people's lives. Can you talk a little bit about how designers unintentionally cause harm? So it's interesting you say how design can have a negative impact. We tend to think like design has an impact, but we only think about the positive impact. And now that you're saying it, I realize our book never talk about the positive impact. (laughs) We only outline the negative ones. So that being said, uh, our book basically outlines like how designers, they never really want to hurt people, or at least I hope no designers actually want to hurt people. But the thing is that the designer, they don't ask themselves the right questions when they're designing. And that stems from design school. We're taught to make things look beautiful or to to create desirable experiences. We are never once exposed to the consequences of terrible design decisions. So for example, um, what happens is that designers, they design with a single type of users in mind. They forget that all the different users, they don't fit our mental image of the typical user. Or they design, they forget that they're designing for someone else than themselves. It leads to injustice and exclusion. For example, if you don't think about all the people that have visible disabilities because you're not exposed to them, they're not visible in society, uh, it leads to your design not including these people. They also uh, forget about the different ways a product can be used. So even if you're thinking of all the different typical users, um, you might not realize that there's different uses that are difficult to prevent. For example, there's the intended type of use. So that can lead to mistakes, for example, slips, lapses and mistakes. And there's unintended ways that a product can be used. And that's, for example, when someone uh, takes advantage of your product and use it in an abnormal and abnormal way. So as a designer, you have to think of all these different situations and uh, make sure you prevent any mistakes from happening. Wow. Okay. So what should readers, I mean, you have some great stories in there about um, examples of how things can go wrong, but what should readers expect to get out of the book? Um, well, first of all, it's not a technical book at all. Uh, if someone grabs that book and, and expect like in how to not hurt people, unfortunately, they might not find what they're looking for. Um, design is such a complex process that it would be really hard to have like a step-by-step process. So it's not really a technical book. It's more um, a reminder. So it serves as a reminder of how very well-intentioned uh, professionals can create bad design. The same way that engineers in Canada and also somewhere in the States, they have a ring when they graduate. I don't know if you know the story about that ring, but apparently it was the myth actually is that uh, when a big bridge in Quebec uh, collapsed, it killed a bunch of people. And then uh, engineers decide to take the iron from the scraps of the bridge to create these rings as a reminder of their uh, responsibility towards the public. Designers, we don't have that. We don't have that ring to remind us of the importance of our design decisions. So this book is sort of an attempt to have that ring. 
And also it's a selfish book. <laughs> so uh, I wrote it a little bit for myself too, because researching that subject is so interesting. And talking to these amazing professionals was enlightening. And I wrote it a little bit for myself too, but I guess all authors do that for themselves a little bit. <laughs> right. You have to be passionate about it. So. Oh yeah, for sure. Mm. So you interviewed um, several designers that, that are featured in the book. Um, mm -hmm. And I'd love for you to share a few insights into um, anything that you learned that may have surprised you or just was of interest to you through those interviews. Uh, I have two favorite interviews in the book. Uh, well, my personal favorites. And there's a Chloe stories and Serena story. They're shared. Um, they're shared in it. And uh, Chloe's story shares uh, how Facebook keeps reminding her of her dad's death, which is very sad. And I really like your story because Chloe is also a UX designer. So she understands that Facebook doesn't have bad intentions. She understands that there's a reason why Facebook is reminding her of these things. It's so simple, yet extremely straightforward. And um, I love that at one point she says that as much as she hates when Facebook reminds her of Father's Day, she would like to be reminded of Mother's Day. So she really sees the value of it. She just sees how it's how it can hurt, how it can hurt her. And also she reminds that it's really easy to say that, oh, the user just shouldn't share pictures that they don't want to be reminded of. But the fact is, when they do share these pictures that, that Facebook reminds them two or three or four years later, they actually want at that moment to share it. It's just unfair to assume that they should not share it ever. So for me, like her story is great because she's one of us. She's a designer just like us. And she sees that Facebook designers are just like her. She's not blaming them. She's blaming the algorithm behind the decisions. Mm -hmm. And then there's also Serena's story that is extremely uh, interesting. I interviewed her regarding um, a FaceTime call that was uh, really, really important to her. So when her sister was sick and she was about to die, uh, she had her last conversation with her sister through, a Facebook, uh, through FaceTime. And she sees how incredible this is because... Has, if it wasn't of FaceTime, she would not have been able to see her sister before for her last time. But at one point, there's a really poorly designed um, error message. And she said that seeing that message, she understood that this was also design. And to this day, like that sentence, this is design, still, still gives me shivers. Like it's so powerful. And she's also a designer. So she really gets that even the error message is so important and not designing them properly will cause a lot of frustration and sadness to these people in some really, really panicky situations. Mm, that's interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't read that one yet. So on the flip side of this, who are some of the companies or organizations you think are doing some of the best work in designing for good? Well, to be fair, Facebook and Apple are both doing really good things. And uh, it's really important that we don't cast the blame on them. Like they're not specifically trying to hurt people and they're actively trying not to hurt anyone. So it's it would be unfair to say that they're doing bad. However, there are some companies that I think are doing amazing. Like, um, you know, the company Nest that was uh, acquired by Google a couple yes. of years ago, mm -hmm. they do a fire alarm. So a smoke detector. That is incredible. So instead of just like beeping whenever there's an alarm, it uses language to tell the user that uh, not the user, but people living in the house that they have to um, exit or that they have to go next to a window. So they will actually customize the message depending on the type of alarm. 
And also, interestingly enough, uh, because it's a life or death situation, they are always testing their own product. And at one point, they realized that whenever um, people that were waving at the, the, the smoke detector, it would stop the alarm because it was a good way to uh, stop them. False alarms. So people wouldn't remove the batteries like we all do. Mm-hmm. But the problem was that when people were panicky and maybe raising their hands in the air as they were running away from, from their apartment, it would also stop the smoke detector, which was a bit of a problem. So they arranged that and they, they shipped uh, an update to all of their users to prevent doing more arms. So their product, the basis of the product is really great. They are constantly testing it and fixing whenever they see a mistake. So I think this is really, really good. Mm. Mm, great. So you um, you lead design at Shopify. And I know you might find this strange, but there are people that probably don't know what it is. Um, <laughs> so for those that aren't aware of Shopify, can you share a short bit about what Shopify is? Yes, I can. And it's not that strange. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, first of all, Shopify is not Spotify. and <laughs> <laughs> You get that all the time, I'm sure. Yes, we do. And even my computer autocorrect oh, <laughs> still boy. thinks I work at Spotify. <laughs> I had to change that at one point. Um, so Shopify is not really well known to uh, users because it's a B2B type of company. So uh, we're a commerce platform and we're just trying to pave the way to entrepreneurship. So anyone wanting to sell something uh, can use Shopify as a platform. Initially, it was only like for e-commerce website. So if someone wanted to sell T-shirts, they could use Shopify to create a beautiful web store and sell their T-shirts. And we would take care of all the boring stuff, such as payments and and the checkout and making sure it was secure and keeping the inventory and all of that. We were taking care of all that. Uh, Now it's a lot more than e-commerce. It includes uh, a POS solution, so a point of sale solution. It includes um, card readers, also uh, channels, so you can buy stuff on on uh, Facebook, for example, and this is all part of Shopify. Wow, that's awesome! So you're 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 the uh, the machine behind all of this with the transactions. Exactly, we try to make ourselves as uh, transparent as not transparent, but as invisible as possible because we want our merchant, our entrepreneurs, to shine. So we don't brand ourselves very much to customers. Excellent. Okay. So how is design organized there um, at Shopify? Like, how do you work among like within design, but also across the organization um, with product, with engineering. Talk to me a little bit about that, if you can. So Shopify, people don't know, but we have over 2000 employees right now. So we're starting to be quite large. At Shopify, we don't have a design department per se. We have a UX umbrella that we call. And under that UX umbrella, we have designers, we have content strategists, we have UX researchers and front-end developers. So this is something that is slightly different from some other companies where um, front-end developers are working uh, within the UX team. That team, the big UX team, has a lot of employees. And uh, we try to, <clears throat> sorry, we try to have someone from all disciplines on every project. By that, it's obviously not possible to have someone from every single one. But we try to have at least someone from the UX discipline, someone from engineering, and someone from product on every single major project that we're working on. we Some people ask us about like ratios, how many designers per engineers and stuff like that. I don't think, I don't believe we have a ratio. I, I could double check that, but I don't believe we do. However, like some some projects will require a lot of designs. For example, like when we design, when we 
redesigned the checkout experience. We obviously need a lot of designers on that project because it's customer facing and there are a lot of different pieces that we have to tie together. However, some other projects don't require as much design work, so the ratio will be lower. It might be higher in terms of front-end development. We also have content strategists, but we don't have one content strategist per team. We have actually in the Montreal office, we have two content strategists now and they're covering uh, all the different projects. So they are very, very helpful. Same with uh, the researchers. They tend to move from one project to another. And that's really great because they have so much knowledge and they know every single project and they know all the little intricacies about each and every one of them. So it's really, really helpful. So I guess that's how we work together within a team. And also like as a, as a big UX organization, so we try to meet whenever we can. So we have a, a yearly uh, conference that is uh, organized internally. And it's always really, really great. It's once a year and everyone flies from all over the world, wherever they're working and they join us. Uh, this year, it's going to be in Toronto in Canada. And uh, it's actually in a month. It's going to be really, really great. And it's the best time to see our coworkers from other offices and to share and to learn about the the latest practices and how things are going. It's so much fun. Wow. So how many, about how many designers or UX folks would you say there are within, within your company? And you, you mentioned um, across locations, you're distributed. So I can tell you in Montreal, we're over 30 in the UX organizations, but across the company, I'm unsure. I would, we're over a hundred, but I'm unsure of the exact number. Mm-hmm. But and you're and you're distributed across the United States, across North America, across the globe. How does that work? So we try to have people working in the same location at the as the product they're contributing on. So uh, whenever you're on a project team that is based in Montreal, for example, we try to have all the designers in Montreal in the same location. We believe that this helps in terms of communication. Um, so yes, we also have offices in Montreal, Waterloo. Toronto, Ottawa, we have uh, an office in San Francisco. And yeah, we're a little bit distributed everywhere. It's really interesting. We have more people remotely working elsewhere in Canada and elsewhere in the world. It's it's a great team. It's great to have people from all these different perspectives too. It brings so much to the team. Absolutely. So you've you've taken on a leadership position there and I'd love for you to talk about what advice you might have now that you've been you've been leading the teams. What advice you might have for folks in design and product who want to take on more of a leadership role? I get that question fairly often. And one thing that I say all the time is that you have to want it and you have to tell people that you want it. So it often doesn't reflect really well on specifically a young woman to say, oh, I would like to lead people. It can be um, misleading a little bit. However, uh, I don't see it that way. I actually want everyone on my team that actually want to pursue a, uh, a career in leadership to tell me in straightforward, because the worst thing is when we have an individual that becomes a lead, but doesn't really want to do any people leadership. They just want to be technical leads. But when they're pushed into a people leadership role, it doesn't work really well. You have to deal with a bunch of other things outside of your craft. And it's really difficult if it's not something that you specifically want. So the first thing I'd say is you have to want it and you have to say people to, to tell everyone around you that you want it. The other thing that I suggest is to know yourself. And this sounds a bit cheesy, but there's a great metaphor about the hedgehog and the fox. I don't know if you've ever heard it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But share it's, for those who might not have. 
So yeah, the hedgehog has only one trick and the fox has a lot of tricks. So the fox can eat whatever they want, but the the hedgehog only has one trick is not being eaten by the fox. And um, you can be either one or the other. So you're either someone that has one trick, does it really well and understand the world through like that lens. Or you're a fox that can do pretty much everything. You'll do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And as long as there's no good or bad ways of seeing things, but it's great to know which one you are. So you don't try to actively become the other one. So I tend to see a lot of people that have a bunch of interests and they're really good at many, many things. They try to focus on a single one, but they get bored really quickly. And um, this is not really successful because they're they're constantly uh, disappointed by themselves. So... As long as you know yourself, you'll be fine. Um, Another thing I see is that some people think that going into management means you'll work less because you'll have (laughs) other people doing the work. (laughs) I can tell you that this is not the case. (laughs) So if you think that this is why you want to get into management, stay away because you'll be very, very disappointed. (laughs) And um, last but not least, this is something I've seen over and over again. And this even applies to myself. Uh, We tend to be either really good at compassion or really good at rigor, but leadership is a mix of both. So if you're always very compassionate and your teammates see you you as a very human person, someone that really cares about people, that have have a lot of empathy, this is great. But as a leader, you also have to cultivate a bit of rigor so that people respect your decisions. And it's really, really hard because when you're a pleaser, when you're a helper, you never want to disappoint anyone, even though you have to give them feedback. So it's all about if you're compassionate, try to cultivate a bit of rigor. And if you're too rigorous, you don't want to lead people only with rigor because then you come off as a very bad person. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And, And we've all had these leads that didn't care personally about you. They only gave you feedback and challenged you directly. And it's not the best path to leadership. So I would say these are the three things. Okay. Wow. That last piece was excellent. Um, have you yeah. read Have you read or, or watched um, the author uh, speak of radical candor? Have you heard of the book? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So rigor and compassion is, well, they are the two pieces of radical candor. So you have to care personally and you have to challenge directly else you're just being manipulative or just mean. (laughs) So yes, this is such a great framework. It fits really well with rigor and compassion. I love that. I love that. So what what do you look for when you're hiring um, people for your team? We hire a lot of different people and for many, many different skills. So you don't have to be someone that does only one thing. You can be a great uh, wireframer and a great researcher and a great content strategist. If you have a large spectrum, you have to make sure you do whatever you try to do really well, though. Don't try to just touch something and not do it completely. So I would say this is one thing. We often hear like T-shapes. I use something that I call a sombrero shape (laughs) or the Urshi kiss shape. (laughs) So I want someone that is really good at one thing, but can, can be stretched at doing two or three other skills. So this is my personal favorite type of employees. So once you have a bunch of sombreros, they usually cover the whole spectrum of design and that's perfect. Another thing we always ask ourselves, like, what would this new candidate add to our culture, add to our team? So this is great because it avoids like having clones of ourselves. So if you are completely different and if you see you're interviewing with someone that you just know you you are just two different type of human beings, it's perfectly fine at Shopify because we want that. We 
we actively want people that are not just like us. And um, there's a there's a great talk on like how we have biases. We like people that look just like us. And I know like some of the employees I work with that I hired are literally identical to me, like a sh- women with with uh, brown hair and we talk alike. We have the same personality. So it's it's great if you're something else because we want to expand our team. Uh, one thing we keep looking for is self-awareness. So if someone come in, comes in and we feel that they're not the best at something, but they can be upfront about it. And when we ask them questions, they want to hear why we're challenging or giving them feedback. Uh, this is amazing. This is what we want. We don't expect everyone to know everything. However, like if someone acts as if they know it, it's really, it doesn't look bad on the person. So I'd much rather have someone that is humble than someone that has a little bit, uh, that has a lack of self-awareness. Mm-hmm. One other thing we're looking for is people that are constantly hungry for learning more. So we want people that uh, read blog blog articles or uh, read O'Reilly books or have purchased my book, for example. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, just people in general that are constantly learning about different things. Because coming in this company, it's impossible that you have all the experience required to work here. No one has. You just learn on the go, but you have to be very aware that there is a lot to be learned and to be willing to learn these new things too. Mm -hmm. So this would be like the main things in terms of like what skill they should have. I'd say like any experience in product design would be good. Experience with uh, visual design is also very good as we have like different teams now. We have teams that only work on branding. We have teams that do illustration work. Um, We have teams that only do motion, but we have a bunch of designers that also work on the product itself. So any experience really is good. And yeah, I guess that's pretty much what we're looking for. (laughs) That's excellent. That's excellent. So I have one final question for you, um, which is beyond your own work the things that you're doing there, what people or projects are grabbing your attention? Who's doing interesting work in your mind? Well, that's a really good question. These days, I'm really, really interested, but I'm by no means an expert on the question, but I'm just very interested by the ethics uh, and the conversations around artificial intelligence. There's a great article that I read uh, not that long ago about, about uh, m- machine biases. So the idea is that the machine learning softwares are biased negatively against different ethnicities. It's really interesting to ask ourselves these questions uh, because we don't want machine learning to be racist and to be sexist and to be all these badist things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so by no means am I a professional there, but all these articles that we see recently are so interesting. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on, Cynthia. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me and for asking me these great questions. Thank you for listening. You can reach Cynthia on Twitter at Cynthia Savard. You can subscribe to the O'Reilly Design Podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or TuneIn. And be sure to leave a review while you're there. <laughs>